Now we don't have any value. So, <laughs> hello. Um, <laughs> I wonder if you guys know, like, how hard this book has, and like diving into it has fucked up my life. <laughs> um, like, it has negatively impacted my already negatively impacted sleeping time, amongst other things. And also just like, so the conversations in text between Langdon and I, I think are already like justifications for, I don't know, we're probably on a few lists, right? Um, but at this point, I'm just waiting for the men in white robes to come and take us away. Because <laughs> it, it like oscillates between figuring out this clue in Book of the New Sun, um, Christian mysticism ravings, and then like paranoia about Severian. So, I, yeah. <laughs> so you know how usually I end the episodes with the poems in the beginning of the books. And when I say usually, I mean twice, right? Because we've only done two books. But I, I, I don't want to do the quote now. I just want to open by maybe, before we do the recap, by talking about this guy who Gene quotes. Because I think, let me just check... Citadel of the Utak for the poem there. Oh, there isn't one. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't catch that when I was reading it. So the poem at the, at the beginning of Sword of the Lictor is actually not... It's attributed um, to this guy called Osip Mendelstam. And uh, Osip Mendelstam was a Soviet poet, Russian who was arrested as part of Stalin's repressions of the 1930s. So he was actually arrested twice. And the second time that he was arrested, he was sentenced to labor, forced labor, in the Far East, you know, where most forced labor in Soviet Russia took place. And he died um, the same year that he was sent for forced labor. Now, this is interesting for a few reasons. Um, first of all, he was Jewish. He was born um, inside uh, what's called the Pale, right? which is uh, kind of like the, the um, Jewish borders. Not, not really like a ghetto, but it's more like a legal border. Um, and he was originally a revolutionary. He was part of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. He then went on, like a lot of Russians, um, to study in, in, in Paris, uh, specifically in the Sorbonne, you know, one of the most prestigious schools um, in Europe. And then when he came back to Russia, he kind of formed this core of uh, poets which were associated with symbolism, which was a big artistic and literary movement in the beginning of the 20th century. And as these things kind of go... Um, he deliberately insulted Stalin. It's kind of not a good idea. <laughs> um, and he was later reinstated, you know, during what's called um, the Khrushchev 
Thor, where you know that iron fist um, that's that Stalin um, implemented during the thirties loosened up a bit. And I think it's very interesting that Gene uh, quotes him out of all people he could have quoted, because as we go into the two second books of the quartet, we are going to start to see an anti-communist vibe um, start to infiltrate the books, right? Yeah, it's there. There's an important. Uh... There's an important biographical detail about Gene Wolfe that intercedes here. A lot of times the biographies of authors don't necessarily provide us the kinds of insights that we want from a text. We have we have obvious um, keen desire that learning the more about who makes the art that we like will elaborate on it. But this ignores that a lot of times art comes from a place of um, fantasy and passion. Not fantasy as in necessarily dragons, but like imaginings um mm-hmm. and projections and things like that and so a lot of times it can lead us a little bit astray we can overly ground something where something was perhaps more projection uh meanwhile this one detail from gene wolf does intercede pretty um pretty firmly he was a veteran of the korean war um and in in retrospect given how fervent it will eventually become in these books it's it's not in book three and it's book four where it really really kicks off Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see how intense it becomes and you're almost like, wow, you really restrained yourself, didn't you? And this, this poem is that, that first little, yeah, that first Hint. little grace note. Yeah. So I just wanted to call that out and, <laughs> you know, also to say that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, <laughs> like as modern leftists, we are constantly on the defensive um, because of just the existence of where we live and the the politics of it um, to the point where we tend to exaggerate. I think any criticism of uh, communist societies is um, perceived as an attack or as, you know, CIA propaganda or whatever. And the fact is there is much to criticize about communist societies, right? Like uh, the Soviet Union was not perfect. Communist China was slash is not perfect. Cuba is not perfect. Vietnam is not perfect. Um, All of these societies are not perfect. And I think it's important to recognize when someone criticizes these things from a valid point of view. And while I think that Gene kind of dabbles a little bit too much in yellow uh, peril in these uh, latter cha- in the cha- latter chapters of the books. I do think that the criticism that he makes, maybe when you clean it up from the way in which he makes it, um, has merit to it. And I think it's interesting and a good choice to open by Osip uh, Mendelstam because let me just be perfectly clear here. There was absolutely no need to execute um, this guy. Like, zero need. Like, this guy is not, you know, like a traitor to the revolution or whatever. He's not a kulak. He's not like an informant. He's just a guy who pissed off Stalin. 
And, and it's even worth noting he wasn't even necessarily all that big of a poet at the time. He he ran well in certain poetic circles, but in terms of popular appeal or like a kind of mass power that you maybe could attribute to certain kinds of artists in like yeah. if you wanted to push push that thought to it to its limit, he really doesn't fall into that at all. He was he was relatively minor at the time and mostly saw his esteem rise in the wake of a fairly unjust um execution. Like it's sort yeah. of on its face and in in a sense you know when you actually go and read you know, good history books written on the, the 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 persecution stalinist persecution as it's called there were a lot of people killed and arrested that shouldn't have been killed and arrested and part of the desire that motivated those murders and those arrests was the kind of um aspiration towards a monoculture that Gene Wolfe uses these books to criticize, right? So in a sense, it's it's not just Citadel of the Utak. Even if you read the first two books or the third one, which we're about to discuss, and you read between the lines, that criticism of um, the obsession with control over culture and over um, progress kind of uh, shines through. And I think it's it's a good, it's a good point, right? Um, so I wanted to open with that because the story really resonated with me. And I think while the third book doesn't discuss it as head on as the fourth one, it's definitely present there. Um, and I think that we'll touch upon it for sure when we talk about Citadel, right? Yeah. Uh, that's but also... <laughs> the first like half of the book is devoted almost entirely to... Uh... Uh, how much he absolutely hates Chinese people. Um, so yeah. it okay. it will be relevant. Um, For sure. Okay, so recap. Um, we <laughs> are reading... Hardest recap in the world. Yeah, it's going to be very short. We are reading <laughs> The Book of the New Sun. We have been reading it for the past fucking six months of our lives. Um extremely intricate book if you haven't heard the first episodes this episode will make absolutely no sense <laughs> so go and um listen to those in the first book soul of the torture if you recall sort of the torture shadow of the torture shadow of the torture uh, yeah yeah my bad um i'm all i have bill gates juice inside of me uh, <laughs> i got my booster shot today so i'm a bit groggy um Shadow of the Torturer, we meet Severian, who is an apprentice to the Torturer's Guild in the far future, and we follow him as he is exiled for allowing, um, mercy killing, basically, um, a noble prisoner in which he fell in love. During that time, he is regaled by trials and tribulations, including dying the, twice <laughs> and coming <laughs> back to life, um, dueling with weird plants, and meeting his and sleeping with his grandmother and resurrecting her, um, meeting his father unbeknownst to him, meeting his cousins or two cousins, um, and more and more during, um, fuck, what's the second book called? God damn, uh, Claude the Conciliator. Yeah. Um, during Claude like, the Conciliator. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, during Claude the Conciliator, we see Severian moving uh, farther and farther into the rustic part of this uh, commonwealth in which uh, he um, moves. And, and a fucked up cave adventure. Yeah, he meets um, 
apes, man-apes, and something <laughs> booming in the darkness. Again, listen to the previous episode if you want to hear a discussion about that. Um, he meets friends and loses friends to weird teleportation devices. He resurrects uh, one more person. He meets the Utark. Um, he meets, well, Father Inire again for the maybe fourth or fifth time, unbeknownst to him. Um, uh, he he performs in a play that is itself both a recapitulation of the entire series, uh, mm-hmm. apart from specifically the end of book three, as well as almost all of the first book. Yeah. And then afterwards, <laughs> he again splits from this troop of actors, um, meets a fucking uh, Cthulhu-esque Lovecraftian sea creature who tries to kill him <laughs> and uh, summons the past slash future version of himself um, whereupon uh, he once again him and his uh, companions scatter um, to the four winds and he pushes forward with his grandmother slash lover uh, Dorcas the unfortunately named Dorcas um, Dorcas is such a funny fucking name it's, I just started saying that yeah. like in my day to day life um that's yeah. been one of the positive contributions of rereading this book. <laughs> um so that's where we leave our characters and there's once again a jump uh forwards in time just like the last uh bit where uh when the third book begins Sword of the Lictor um appropriately named since Severian is finally a Lictor or a Carnifex if you want fancy words for executioner or person who upholds the law um, because he has reached Thrax um, the city of what's the moniker oh, fuck no no windows windowless rooms something like that something uh, yeah yeah That's... because it's built it's built into the mountain right so you have a lot of rooms without windows windowless rooms I think is the nickname um, so he's in Thrax and congrats um, you're a lictor. This is what you wanted, right? Like, this is what you were fucking traveling across half a planet. And might I remind you, the roads are closed, right? He's not allowed to just travel. And it's very dangerous to travel. And he's um, done all this traveling to reach tracks. And of course, as these uh, stories go, it sucks. Right? This like, you work. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you go on. I, 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 have, I have my thought for a second. Cool. So it's. Uh, I was just gonna say that you climb all the way to the summit, and then you get to the summit, and you find out that there's nothing there, and this actually fucking blows. So this uh, mirrors in in like in many instances in this book, um, the uh, the life of Christ. That's right. We're back at it, boys. Um, yeah. Where the the symbolic nature of him being raised as a, a lictor or as as uh, a torturer comes more from a commentary. And again, this is where the 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 history of Gene Wolfe comes in handy. He was he's a very Catholic boy. Very Catholic. You know, we're gonna be mentioning that a lot, just like we have already mentioned it a lot. So the view of rabbinical study as being dedicated, a dedicated uh, guild of tortures, um if you want to be most uh sympathetic to it, it's more a commentary of a view of what um Jehovah represents especially the old testament god sort of that traditional image of like those who carry out the law uh, that it's about the law of the lord and carrying out the law of the lord and not 
um, doing so as mercifully as one can, but still following strictly to that. And so um, Severian arriving here is sort of, you know, uh, Christ in his 30s uh, returning and being like, all right, I'm ready to be a rabbi. And wait, this sucks. I don't, I don't like yeah. this. I don't like this at all. Um, yeah. And of course, that's not the only mirroring. If you recall, when we spoke about the beginning of the second book, it all it always starts well not always it's about to change with the fourth one but um it starts with a city right um we started in nessus or settlement right started in nessus we moved to saltus where we dis we discussed the etymology of the world um and now we're in thrax and and the point of opening us in thrax and showing us that the same sort of cruelty and hierarchy that rules Nessus, right? The poor are the majority, but they're ruled by this very strict social order in Nessus, is replicated in Thrax, right? Um, at the top is the Archon, whom Severian uh, serves as his ex executioner. He has his, um, uh, you know, layer of, um, they're called eclectics, these are foreigners, basically, that came, as was often actually the case in medieval societies, came from abroad, from a different place, where, so that they can't be bribed or take mercy on people they know and so on. Um, and they've kind of adjusted or appropriated the culture to themselves. And there's the autocathons, right? The uh, locals. Some of them can reach you know, high positions through trade and so on. And they kind of hover around political power. Um, and that kind of makes the ruling um, layers of Thrax. And th th the point here is that Nessus is the decadence of the Commonwealth, right? We spoke about the etymology of the name, a poison. It's all about this, you know, slow decay of humanity and how it's you know, tainted by this technology that's all around it. Saltus, you know, showed us um, murder and lawlessness and war and um, you know, the disasters and the possible futures and pasts of the society. And Thrax is really about like nailing that message home um, about cruelty. Uh, the city is very cruel. It's, it's ruled with an iron hand. Severian begins by administering his trade as he does, you know, dispassionately and uh, without regard for, you know, right, righteousness or morality. Um, and of course, like you said, bringing it all back, this cruelty is meant to be mirrored or meant to be a mirror for the cruelty that we um, all feel. One of the best passages and one of my favorite quotes from this book is when Severian finally has a break, like literally a break, right, uh, <laughs> uh, from his hard work to walk around Thrax um, for the first time. And he says, the brown book, more on that later, I carry... It says there is nothing stranger than to explore a city wholly different from all those who know all those one knows, since to do so is to explore a second and unsuspected self. I have found a thing stranger to explore such a city only after one has lived in it for some time without learning anything of it. The mirror here is obvious. The strange thing is not to um, you know find a new thing within yourself. The strange thing is to find something within yourself that was always there, but you've you've only just uh, come to realize that it's there. And for Severian, it's cruelty. 
he's he's starting to come to understand that torturer guild and executions and all the dispassionate objectivity is actually super cool and through this he winds up learning so we'll um it happens a little bit later with Inthrax, but he has he has a moment of, of healing a sickly child for no gain and and for no reason it can, can he talks about how it can potentially put him at risk and things like that and so likewise it's uh the the discovery of cruelty inverts itself quite quickly and it becomes mm -hmm. obviously Thrax is, is the site in which Severian first begins the ascent towards a Christ-like mercy, which he, which he's exhibited throughout the books. It's just always been this glimmering, imperfect, imprecise thing, which mm -hmm. it, it, it taps a lot of ways into, um, dis, despite obviously like the lay view of Catholicism, the view of like, um jesus as a man who had to learn how to be a god so like he couldn't have had his ministries prior to his 30s because he had to learn to be the kind of person that he needed to become uh which is uh one of uh, normally i hate severian because he's a, because he's huge bastard he's a huge piece of shit but yeah. it's it's moments like this where you not only get a sense of the redeemability even of monsters but also even of gene wolf who we've painted obviously for non non improper reasons um a rather conservative catholic uh anti-communist like war veteran things like that you wind up getting that sense of the human of the human within him as well of seeing like that this is ultimately how he sees people um as yeah. like e one can emerge from the darkness of uh of these acts it's also sort of the first time that we get the sense of not just severian judging his former actions as cruel but the text itself obviously the text is written by severian but there's there's a tonal shift within thrax that even in narration he starts to lean a little bit more uh on passionate ends rather than the dispassionate discussion of uh execution like it's rather disturbing when he carries out um one of the one of the executions in Thrax and seems to feel nothing of it and is uh, not only chastised for his his lack of feeling, but seems to actually take that criticism deeply to heart, which is something obviously earlier Severian would never have done, um, would have been like, no, this is my job. Um, it's yeah. funny, we actually get a parallel in here of the travels from Nessus, the capital city, and especially from uh I forget what it's called. The the cluster of spaceships. Um, the Citadel? Is that it? No. No, um, the... Yeah, the Citadel. You okay. mean the Citadel from which Severian hails, right? Well, the tower yes. is. Yeah. So the, 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 the movement here is a strong parallel to the movement of the Buddha on his ascent to Buddhahood as well, of leaving specifically the capital and journeying out and out yeah. and witnessing these various... Um, as, as Siddhartha, right, before he becomes yeah. the Buddha. And and it, it, it's funny because this taps into a fun little historical factoid. Uh, that's a story that's so profound that the Catholic Church themselves beatified the Buddha. Um, yeah. He's he's recorded as both uh, two saints, Barlam and Josephat. But if you read their story, it's um, pretty obviously the life of Siddhartha Gautama as he has the ascent to the Buddhahood. And this is sort of their way of um, going like, yeah, we can't really read this and not not see parallels to our own faith. So we're just going to have yeah. to 
Um, so but yeah, and then that that mirrors itself in here as well. Yeah. So now comes one of the most important and subtly fucked up passages um, in the entire series, which if you've listened for this long or ever read the books, you know is saying something. Um, so Severian is wandering around. Thrax, by the way, Dorcas in the meantime is depressed and she's even more disappointed than him because she barely sees him and she can sense that their love is kind of um, fading away or becoming something more distant. Um, but uh, Severian is invited to a masquerade, basically, right? Like a costume party um, of the upper echelon hosted by the Archon. And he's not only invited to that party, you know, for his, obviously for his novelty and the fact that he's an eccentric and he's kind of like a bauble that the Archon can show off. Uh, well, what's good uh, a bauble if you don't actually show its use, right? And Severin's use is executing people. So the Archon is planning this big show of force where he can um, both show off his acquisition and remind everyone that he has the power of life and death. And Severian is tasked with executing a woman. And this woman's name is Syriaca. Now, by now, you know <laughs> that when a name comes up, you should probably Google it. And this is perhaps the one instance where if you don't do it, you miss the whole point of what's happening. So first of all, um, Syriaca, the historical figure, was a saint. Now, that shouldn't surprise you. There are many saints um, in this uh, book. She was specifically uh, scourged to death for her faith. And there's not a lot of interesting um, overlap here. Or like It doesn't reveal to us any clues about the characters by the way in other cases it does and we haven't covered it because it will literally take us like an entire podcast <laughs> just to talk about that but go back and google all those names and read about you know the you know, jonas jonah all that stuff um and other uh, characters but if you look at the etymology of the name you figure out that the name actually comes from kiriakon which is literally the root from which christianity comes from right um it means you know uh, the, the, the outmost ruler. It comes from Kyrios, right? Uh, of the Lord, of the Master, and so on. So, spoiler alert. The, I mean, spoiler for five more minutes, right? Because we're going to talk about it anyway. Severian refuses to kill this woman um, after they converse, which is the first time that Severian has refused to kill, right? So he did break orders when he killed Thecla or helped her kill herself but this is the first time that he refused, refuses to kill and that's the moment that he becomes Christ or put in a different way the, in, in the, the um, one level above in, in, the, in the parallel this is the moment where this Severian our Severian becomes the new son this is what separates him from all of the previous versions of Severian, which we will discuss in length in the next book. But for now, this... No, we're going to discuss it a little bit in this book, too. 
Yeah, I guess you might. Yeah, you might. <laughs> anyway, not right now, though. So Yo, no. <laughs> what you need to know for now is that when he spells her life, he essentially revokes the, the Torturer's Guild. He revokes cruelty. He revokes blind justice and embraces um, empathy and forgiveness and humanity. So this is the moment where he becomes the Severian that um, humanity and inhumanity, that is the Hyrodules, have been waiting for. Now, is that anywhere in the text? It is not. That doesn't appear in any obvious way whatsoever, um, but it's very clearly the case, right? Because this is also the pin on which the story revolves, right? Because after this, Severian starts to escape. Uh, Thrax, spoiler, um, <laughs> again, to something we're going to talk about in five minutes. Um, and the wandering phase of his career truly begins. We even have the 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 child that, that he heals that I mentioned earlier. He doesn't do so until he escapes from yeah. this party. Um, he he realizes at a certain point, and it, even even as a reader, um, I've I've read Book of the New Sun I think five times now, something like that, four or five. Um, each time I get to the Syriaca part, um, in the back of my head, I know the thing about Kyriakon, um, because I uh, dove deep into that end of like, um, not just Christian but general theological papers find that shit super fascinating and despite not really necessarily being a believer i find there's a lot of um poeticism and capturing of image that is really profound shocker right shocker that uh this you know, <laughs> thousands year long human enterprise would be moving even if it's not literally real um but in the midst of reading it i routinely get lost within her tale to the point where i forget by the end when he uh he also he also fucks her because he's severian um (laughs) so he has sex with her and then uh leaves and one the sex that he has with her is portrayed radically different this is suddenly portrayed as like an equal footed equally desired thing he's clearly not related to her that's a big step up for a boy big step up um but it's you even see within that moment that that these things that we've traditionally associated with Severian changed their tenor completely. Um, and then like like he's learning he's learning how to love because before he never he pretty obviously never really loved Jolenta or Dorcas or Agia or any of these people. It's not that he necessarily had malice. Um, it's more that he uh, like uh, to, to use as neutral language as possible. It was, it was as though he didn't really feel anything um, and not by choice. He just like, he didn't for whatever reason. And now he sort of awakened this human part that by the time that he leaves and he's like, I have to absolutely get the fuck out of this party right now. I'm like, why? What? What do you, what? And then he mentions only when he's on top of this. So he, he escapes the party. He's he's like, I have to leave Thrax right now, in fact. Um, and he starts bolting it out. And he sits on top of a building near the edge of the city. And it's at that point that he's like, yeah, I didn't kill her. And that there's something about the way that he delivers it that always takes me aback. Because I'm always surprised at his prosaic 
like sleight of hand that I've completely forgotten that he's there to kill her because of uh, an element of what she talks about um, that we wanted to discuss. But it's a bit, if you read it, it's a bit um, plainly obvious. We're just sort of stating the obvious. She tells him not only the remaining plot of the book right there. Um, she also says a lot of things that he really doesn't narratively dive into until Earth of the New Sun, um, which... Oh, let, let's talk about her story for a second. Okay. <laughs> so, when you read the story, you are reading the history of how we got to the Book of the New Sun, right? like the chain of events that led to the... Um, current state of things in the Commonwealth and the you know Severian's role in it and, and so on. But remember last episode where we talked about this kind of like corkscrew version of timelines where things return and parallel themselves. So when you're reading this history, you're also reading about the future. And they're both correct. Like this happened in the past and it's also already going to happen and it also might not happen. And we'll get to exactly why that is at the end of um, this book. There's a bit of it that's in the next book when we meet Ash, but um, most of it is in this book. So, so for now, when we talk about um, the story, you can think of it as a history but just remember that this is the Book of the New Sun, so it's also a prophecy. Um, now, I think one thing you need to consider, and this is going to start to become more and more obvious from this point on, or more and more pertinent, I want you to start asking yourself, how much does Severian know? Right? Like, if you read the surface level of what he says... He seems like pretty dumb. Right? He's <laughs> like he seems oblivious to what's happening. Like all of these forces are working on him. He's clearly protected in some sort of way. The clock keeps doing miracles. He keeps like having superpowers and shit like that. Um, and yet he insists on this. Ooh, I had no idea what was happening, and I was so confused. And what's going on? And could it be? But is that actually what's happening here, or? can we start to think about Severian as someone who is in on it to a certain degree? Like he doesn't have all of the pieces and he doesn't know entirely what's happening, but does he know, right? Because when um, Syriaca tells him this story, he is not surprised and he is not, he doesn't argue with her, even though what she tells him is, you know, fantastical. Right? It's it's absolutely mind blowing, right? But he um, is not nonplussed. And I'll read a quote on what Severian says after we talk about the story, right? So Syriaca's story. Um, this part is pretty obvious, right? Like like Langdon said, she just tells it. But let's go over the main um, details, right? The main be beats. So humanity becomes uh, galactic, and some parts of the book it's actually hinted that it's intergalactic, uh, like able to you know move between galaxies, um, becomes this huge empire, and they build um, basically AIs, but more than AIs, androids, right? Like a new generation of 
uh, creatures um, created by humanity. And then by uh, force of their expansion and their unbelievable riches and control over reality, they um, become jaded, right? They become these uh, extremely cold and logical creatures, completely safe. And there's a cold Winder Smith reference here, by the way, this idea of humanity becoming completely safe and needing to rediscover itself, the rediscovery of man, which is the title of one of Cold Winder Smith's most uh, famous stories. There and, is, uh, yeah. By the way, there is no way that Gene Wolfe yeah. wasn't referencing that. For, for the listener... Yeah. If you don't recognize the name Cordwain or Smith, a quick Google will show you like, oh yeah, no, he knew who this guy was. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and we'll do a Cordwain or Smith episode at some point in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, because it's impossible. Uh, he he was amazing and problematic and fucked up. Like he invented PSYOPs, <laughs> just so you know. Um, like literally invented them. Anyway, so um, humanity, you know, hands over the, the, the control of the empire to these machines um, like Syriaca says, the building of everything from cities to cream pitchers was in the hands of the machines. And after a thousand lifetimes of building cities that were like great mechanisms, they turned to building cities that were like banks of cloud before a storm and others like the skeletons of dragons. Um, Calvino reference, perhaps? Um, who knows? But definitely a, a Borges reference. Um, so she goes on to say that finally these machines, like, you know, they got to the end of time and they themselves understood that once they would die you know everything would uh, disappear humanity has fallen into this insane um, hedonism and they had to uh, maintain the knowledge so they started writing it all down um, and this writing sort of you know started to circulate um, around uh, the people and Eventually, it of course became the source of power, um, and the Utarks started to use it for their control right back on Earth. Um, and eventually, you know, skipping over a few details, they're all in there. Um, these creatures, AI machines, new humans, whatever you want to call them, understood that the only way for them to avoid the fate that they've been um, fearing, you know, dying and disappearing into nothingness, they need to go back in time and force humanity to rediscover all this knowledge, right? And to rediscover the danger and thrill and enjoyment of being human and being limited and uh, being not safe and daring and innovating and so on. This is the meta plot for the Book of the New Sun. Right? Uh, the Commonwealth becomes stagnant, starts to forget everything after the Age of Decadence, starts to mingle with the Undines and with other alien bloodlines, and starts to forget what it means to be human. And the Hyrodules, which are those machines, yeah. right? the, those AI, um, those new generation of beings, intervene backwards in time, and we'll talk about how they can do that um, later, to bring about the new sun. And the new sun is nothing more than the rediscovery of man, right? Reminding humanity why they exist, the thrill of danger, the thrill of um, exploration and innovation, and so on. 
this also so explains one last uh, thing one oh, last thing on. remember when vodolus and severian were talking in the forest with thea in the previous book and they talked about how one day you know men and the children of men will go back among the stars and rediscover what they're about they were referencing this um sort of revival that's it. so this likewise mirrors something that gene wolf himself said about the book when people would challenge him so up until this point it sounds like this is just a pure uh, at least from, at least from what i've been saying uh it sounds like this has been almost a pure christ metaphor all the way through um this is the important point that reifies gene wolf's own comment where he said not really it's you know he obviously borrows a lot of structures and he does that very deliberately and in ways that we've discussed it's like there's there's a lot that gets built out but this is sort of that key split this is what makes it um book of the new sun rather than just a loose christian allegory this is yeah. also one of the things that makes it why this has a level of respect that say something like narnia or the other c.s lewis sci-fi series who I, I with out of a silent planet and stuff like that doesn't necessarily have um not that those are disrespected just that this is held in a very different kind of esteem and it's because ultimately he is looking to do something that's a lot more along the lines of say the slipstream um humanism and post-humanism uh and new wave of science fiction stuff that was happening around him as he was getting started writing he just refuses it with a Catholic or Christian allegorical underpinning that he felt very strongly. Other writers had sort of discarded because they felt it was like gauche to be overly Christian with their, uh, their literary base um, rather than it just being as much a part of the history of literature as, you know, Shakespeare or anything else. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's this really beautiful moment. It also touches on a point that Eden and I were talking about. Eden's had a long, hypothesis about the brown book specifically um, not yet and... not yet no don't, don't don't reveal the cards yet i want to get to the point where like my the pin dropped for me okay about the brown book. all right so but but, but it is fair. pertinent because now comes the part <laughs> where we start to ask how much severian knows i want to read you a passage and when you're reading this passage it's kind of longer than what i read on here but you'll handle it um first of all think about christ as the um the guy who overturns the table in the temple, right? With the moneylenders. Um, Christ the sword, right? Christ the um, bringer of revolution and upheaval, which is only one image of Christ, but a very important one, right? Um, someone who overturns um, the world. And this is basically what Severian is describing, but think about who he's actually talking here. So, I found myself thinking how strange it would be if the new son the Daystar himself were to appear now as suddenly as he had appeared so long ago when he was called the conciliator. First off, hmm, wow. <laughs> if he were to appear right oh, here. Oh, that right? would be so crazy. Who, yeah. who, who could see that coming? <laughs> yeah, who, who would think that would happen? Um, appearing here because it was an inappropriate place and he had always preferred the least appropriate places, seeing these people through fresher eyes than we ever could. This is and obviously if, Christ with uh, yeah. like, uh, sex workers and thieves and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And the moneylenders, right? Oh, yeah. Seeing the ridiculousness. And if he, he, not I, right, thus appearing here, were to decree by theology that all of them, none of whom I knew and none of whom knew me, 
should forever after live the roles they had taken up tonight because he's in the masquerade, remember? The autocathons hunching over smoky fires in mountain huts of stone. The real autocathon forever a townsman at a ridotto. The women spurring towards the enemies of the commonwealth sword in hand. The officers doing needlepoint at north windows and looking up to sigh over empty roads. The deodans mourning their unspeakable abominations in the wilderness. The remontados burning their own homes and setting their eyes upon the mountains. Now, are you ready? And only I unchanged. As it is said, the velocity of light is unchanged by mathematical transformations. So, <laughs> so, okay. First of all, uh, fuck you. Um, right. You, you condescending piece of shit. Like, he, he knows. Okay. He, he is starting to understand that he is the new sun. He literally compels himself to light. Right? Like, I am light. So, on the surface of things, you could say, yeah, he just means he's the only one not in costume, right? Because he's actually a torturer. The thing is, he's not. This is already after he understands that he's not going to kill her, right? That he's not a torturer. So, he is in costume, right? Um, then he compels himself to light. But then, and this is where the bound book and all that stuff starts to come up again. How the fuck does Severian know that light is a <laughs> universal constant? Like, and only... I unchanged as it is said. Yeah, dude, I'm sure like you're sitting in an inn in <laughs> Nessus or whatever, or not even because you grew up in a fucking guild of torturers and some guy says, you know, how about the fact that light is, the velocity of light is unchanged by mathematical transformations? No, dude, like you read that somewhere, right? Like you found something like a text or something of lost knowledge, right? Because people don't know that shit anymore. Like people like you, just a, uh, apprentice to the guild of torturers they don't know what the velocity of light is um not to mention the fact that it is unchanged by mathematical transformations so it's not a coincidence right and it's not a mistake or um like a latter introduction or whatever this is severian telling you listen i'm not as stupid as you think i am like i'm listening to what she's saying i'm doing all these things and i'm starting to understand that I'm not just another guy. Another part, um, in return for her story, uh, Syriaca asks Severian to tell her about the stone town. Remember in the second, the ending of the second book where they resurrected Apu uh, Punchao, who is Severian. Don't forget that. Um, and there's like a long quote here, but the, the, the piece that is really important is, um, I still think about it and I still don't. But I knew, I know somehow that she was bringing him back and he was bringing the stone town back with him as a setting for himself. Sometimes I have thought that perhaps it had never had any reality apart from him so that when we rode over its pavements and the rubble of its walls, we were actually riding among his bones. So he's, what he's saying here is, I'm making all of this happen. Like all of these adventures that I'm on and all of these interventions, I'm the center of all of this. Like Apu Punchao is the center of his own reality. And again, he's Severian, right? Then this Severian is the center of the reality that we're reading about right now. Um, which, 
raises a few interesting questions, like, for example, Master Malrubius and Triskele revisiting him or existing in the first place. Maybe he made them exist. Um, maybe he made, you know, people come back to life. Uh, maybe he did a bunch of stuff. Um, we even we so I, at some I, at some point we got to do Earth of the New Sun. That may, maybe uh, maybe yeah. at a much later date. But it's we we it's I'm not going to go too deep into it. It's funny we get a literal answer in Earth of the New Sun, and it is exactly the kind of thing you'd imagine um, yeah. from this. Uh, I just I find it cute that literally this was on gene wolf's mind he wouldn't have written it in a later book if it wasn't either something that nagged at him here or something that he had already planned within the text that that's really my only point there and i just yeah as a writer it makes my jaw drop I, we were talking a bit before how the fuck do you write day of the new yeah. or uh, uh book of the new sun how do you sit down and put that pen to paper like yeah do you plan it out for 15 years and then jot it down all in one go? Do you, do you work it out and edit it over and over? I, I just, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. I, love and it. I think <laughs> when we get to, um, in the fourth book, when we meet Ash, that was for me the moment where I was like, he somehow like planned all of this. Like he somehow kept all of this shit in his head and it came out, um, intelligibly. Like you can read it. And as we said in the first episode, like episode zero, you can read it just as a book. Like it works just as a book, even if yeah. you don't read all of these other letters, which is just like crazy. So there's a few more parts. There's the part in the hut. Again, people call him like they say he has bright clothes, even though he doesn't. He heals people without the claw even. Um, he fights this like sick ass monster that Hethor mm. sends after him, the salamander. Those are all great parts. There's just nothing to say about them. Yeah, they're um, pretty. Um, they're even even on a symbolic end, they're pretty. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I, that's obvious there. One yeah. neat little bit of of the darkness of his cloak seeming to betray color, uh, maybe potentially a nod to a, a semi well known um like twelfth century monastic Christian mystic text called the Cloud of Unknowing, which mm -hmm. refers to the brightness of God being so bright that it is a darkness because it's a brightness that renders you blind because yeah. of your inability to perceive. So it's a that's neat. That book's great, yeah. by the way. Worth reading. Yeah. Um, I read it uh, during my uh, BA. Fucking beautiful. Uh, um, so I, I, I do yeah. quite like a bit how this is um, the reference to Apu Punchao touches, uh, and this touches a bit on on the Green Man as well. Is we get um, even without touching on stuff said in explicitly in Earth of the New Sun, we're getting a confluence of of Severians orbiting severian and this um one this sets up a future mystery of the exact nature of the claw itself which yep. we, we we will talk about that but um this also touches on another element of uh things drawn from buddhism for this text on a structural end because we see from there sort of the procession of uh reincarnations and past lives this is this betrays a much richer understanding of what that means like we get this lay understanding specifically typically in the west of you find out literal stuff like oh i was a farmer woman and that's why i blank and that's not really on the mystic end the theological importance of reincarnation within something like hinduism or buddhism it's more something like this where the wisdom of previous lives the previous manifestations of yourself maybe perfectly replicated maybe imperfectly replicated can somewhat 
if you are attuned in certain ways. So typically it's a Buddha who's who's attuned in these ways for uh, obvious reasons. Um, Or in Hinduism, it's like a Hindu priest will be more attuned rather than a lay person. You can gain wisdom or insights from these things. Or sometimes in the case of specifically like Theravada Buddhism, which is um, Tibetan Buddhism, you can receive like trinkets or artifacts from your previous incarnations that are like meant for you in the future, like meant for a future self. Um, And I just find that little beautiful confluence here. If he's starting to explicitly piece together, um, because it's in this moment that we, we, we even see him go like, Oh fuck. Am I Apu Panchal? Is that, is that me? (laughs) Oh shit. Fuck. (laughs) Like, um, that, He's subtle about it. Gene Wolf doesn't like press you on it. But if you know to look for it, you're like, oh, he's getting it now. Oh, like it's not just the fact that he's a new son. He's getting like, I'm I'm a recursion and there are failed versions of me. And both the successful and failed versions are attempting to offer me wisdom or guidance. It also winds up betraying on Gene Wolf's end a much richer sense of what prophecy is. Because even in a theological ground, prophecy isn't so much that history is written in stone and I'm just telling you the future, because then you just say, go exactly here, shoot your arrows exactly there, you will win this battle if you do that. That's not really how prophecy works, it's much more symbolic, and it implies on a theological end a kind of murkiness or like almost time as like a syrup or gel, and so it's like, the act of prophesying affects that which is prophesied. And so you have to do it through these roundabout circum circumlocutions and stuff like that. This yeah. Like, Fuck you, Gene. Fuck you. This is beautiful <laughs> writing. Fuck you. Like, <laughs> so, okay. He does all those miracles and he escapes, um, Salamander and he's now finally like full on disillusioned with his role as a torturer. Like this is where he says, um, that he had never actually been a torturer, and he, even if he had, he is no longer one. There's a really good part where he says, I had been given a second chance here in Thrax. I had failed in that second chance as well, and there would be no third. Well, it's beautiful because it's the opposite, right? Like the yeah. first test was Thecla, and he aced it, and then the second test was Thrax, and he aced it as well. Uh, but from his perspective, it's, it's a failure. Um, and then just before we get to the next really important scene, there's a really cool... Uh, example of how the Hyrodules are messing with him or like uh, um, tweaking his story so that he becomes the new son. Uh, like a few people asked me like, you know, where do you actually see this intervention? Like you talk about this intervention all the time, but where is it actually happening? It seems that Severin is doing everything. Um, and there's this little, um, he's looking for Dorcas, right? And this inn where he left her. And then he says, um, Somehow, I missed the little inn called the Duck Nests in the Dark. I have never known if I took a wrong turning or merely walked past the shuttered windows without glimpsing the sign hanging overhead. Because he misses the inn, he ends up fighting the salamander, right? And like coming into face with this monster and not finding um, Dorcas while she is um, unable to talk to him, right? And, and still in her like self-prescribed muteness because of her depression. Uh, so it's not, he didn't like take a long turning or merely walk past it without glimpsing it. Like the Hyrodules obscured it from him. But, like they made sure that he wouldn't find it at that point because they knew that if he did, then the story would go awry. 
right? And he wouldn't get the um, chance to have the conversation that he's about to have with Tolkien, which, by the way, is one of the most heartbreaking and well-written parts of the Book of the New Sun. Yeah, like, we were both texting each other during it, just like, this I'm this hurts to read. <laughs> yeah. So just remember who Dorcas is, just to remind you, like, she is innocence, right? She's come back from the dead. She has this insight that only those who have died have, and she is, like, completely innocent. She died young, and she's unaware of any of the power struggles that are going on. She genuinely loves um, Severian, right? And, of course, a conversation with her is necessary for Severian to embark on his exile, like his true exile, and his realization that, you know, he is the new son and he is the conciliator and all that stuff. It has to pass through her, right? Because she's the litmus test, right? She's like the standard for truth. And she needs to realize that he's the new son before it's actually, it can be done. So that's exactly what happens um, in this conversation. Like she doesn't tell Severian, listen, dude, <laughs> you're the new son. But she does um, anything but, everything but, right? Um, outright tell him. Like she hints to it again and again and again um, that it's the conciliator acting for the stone. And because he's the one using the stone, then he he can be the conciliator and there is no difference between the conciliator and the new son. The new son is the conciliator come again. By extension, if Severian is the conciliator come again, then he is the new son. Like she literally says, I ask you Severian when he comes again, isn't he to be called the new son? And there's an interesting, very interesting sentence where she says, and I believe that when he came, he brought with him something that had the same power over time that Father Inera's mirrors are said to have over distance. It is that gem of yours. And later on, they talk about Hethor. Everybody remembers who Hethor is, right? Hethor is Father Inere. Um, and they discuss about you know, what Hethor wants. And she says that, yes, he wants the pain, but something more too. He worships you, you know? He talked with me for some time, and I think he would walk into a fire if you told him to. Um, I think that's true. Like, Father Inire worships Severian. Father Inire is Hyrodule himself, you know, trying to guide the Utarchs towards, um, you know, completion of their task, but he's operating as a rogue agent, right? Um, he's, for some reason, stranded on, um, on Earth, and um, he's, he has his own agenda, but he, he knows that Severian is a new son as well, right? Like, all of the stuff that he does in the book is not to kill or harm Severian, it's to guide him towards what Father Rhaenyra wants him um, to be, including as Hethor. So that's Thrax. Anything we didn't cover on Thrax, Langdon? No, no, that um, that covers just about all of it. I mean, the only um, uh, touching back on it, as he's exiting Thrax is when he passes into the uh, uh, the hut of of the sick child and it, it's yeah. just a small touching scene but he heals her for no other reason than because he witnesses sickness and wishes for health um yeah and that's sort of that's not the turning point that's the indication that he has already turned is this 
And he winds up fixating specifically on that moment a lot um, in the same way that he fixates on Thecla and Syriaca is this inexplicable moment of grace that he exhibited. And this seems to hover in his mind. Yeah, I totally agree. So, okay, now the book begins. <laughs> uh, now the main part of the book begins. And what you'll notice is that Sword of the Lictor is the most pastoral of the books. Um, it takes place, first of all, for, mo for most of its Severian is in isolation. He's by himself. And most of it takes place in nature and with Severian passing through it. Now, I'll just say it once because we don't want to keep saying it. Like the descriptions themselves are really beautiful from like an aesthetic perspective. It's a very aesthetic book. Um, so we won't keep going about how beautiful the descriptions are, but they're very, very good. And uh, Gene is very good at like conveying the sense of loneliness and um, of what travel does to you and how it opens your mind. Um, and if you've never hiked, then I really recommend it um, because I think it does have like some sort of mental and, and, and spiritual benefit to you. Um, and, and this book is very much about that. I made a joke like when we were starting this that the Book of the New Sun is about how sick, um, about cool swords. And someone commented about uh, how it's about um, how cool hiking is. And it kind of is. <laughs> like it is in many ways um, that, especially Sword of the Lictor. The other thing is that you need to, again, um, the Christian analogy. This is like Severian's desert father phase. Right, uh, going into nature, isolating himself, starving, uh, meeting you know predations and, and you know weakened physical states, which open his mind. Right, like a lot of these passages, which we're going to condense, we're not going to go over every single thought he has. Are mental. Right, it's all about this inner dialogue that Severian has with himself, and I think the most. Um, important dialogue is the part where he feels like he's falling into the sky because it will be referenced again and again throughout these books like right near the end um, and it goes like this strong too was the feeling that the sky was a bottomless pit into which the universe might drop forever I had heard people say that when they looked at the stars too long they grew terrified by the sensation of being drawn away my own fear and I felt fear was not centered on the remote suns but rather on the yawning void. And at times I grew so frightened that I gripped the rock with my freezing fingers, for it seemed to me that I must fall off earth. Um, and another passage, which I really, really like, but when they became so strongly evident, as they quickly did, that I could no longer dismiss them by an act of will, that is, the stars, I began to feel as frightened of them as I was of falling into that midnight abyss over which they arrived. Yet this was not a simple physical and instinctive fear like the other, but rather a sort of philosophical horror at the thought of a cosmos in which rude pictures of beasts and monsters had been painted with flaming suns. So he's referring to the constellations. Um, it's just a really good part of the book, right? And I think, you know, really kind of gets across this sense of isolation. It's Severian against the universe, right? Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's, it's also the sense of Severian being afraid of godhood, which, which we see yeah. mirrored in uh, both... Oh, yeah, not just in Christian stuff, pretty much this is any ascent of a messianic figure of the realization that to become that which you must become, you will inevitably shed your humanity. Your humanity is a necessary vehicle, but it's only a middle passage to this thing. And it's 
the the terror of Christ on the cross. It's the terror of the Buddha in his um, stomach illness that eventually led to his death of this realization of like, I'm going to give all of this up and I'm going to join this much bigger thing because that's what I'm called to do. And it, yeah, it's it's this the human moment of the Messiah. Um, yeah. So a much the same thing that you were saying, but it's this like profundity of isolation that like, yeah, a level of isolation that which we cannot be even sympathetic to because it's beyond us. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. That last point. And I think it comes back to this idea of, of God as darkness because it's a light which blinds you like you. I don't know how many of you have had the chance to do it, but a lot of Israel is desert, right? So I've I've traveled a lot in desert. And, you know, it's like rocky desert. It's not like the Sahara or whatever, but it's still very desolate. And you look up and there's all these stars and maybe you walk away from the other people you're traveling with and you kind of look up and you feel a connection, like you feel connected to this thing. And then you ask yourself, wait, what am I connecting to? Like this unknowable, unfathomable, infinite abyss. It's kind of Nick Landian almost, right? Or Ray Brassier coldness be my god i like you 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 feel that coldness it's like i don't want to connect with this thing like this thing is (laughs) terrifying so it's like an aversion with a pull with a magneticism and again savannah says i was afraid that i'm gonna fall into it right like he feels the pull of the void and the next passage i want to highlight from this part before we get to the hut is this really (laughs) it's really (laughs) funny and and quite good passage where Gene Wolfe critiques science fiction um, and defends it at the same time. Um, so I, I, again, I want to I want to read this part because it's it's really it's really good. Um, at first, I thought of green skies, blue grass, and all the rest of the childish exotica apt to inflict the mind that conceives of other than earthly worlds. But in time, I tired of those puerile ideas and began in their place to think of societies in ways of thought wholly different from our own. Worlds in which all of all the people, knowing themselves descended from a pair, a single pair of colonists. By the way, this is a premise in The Fifth Head of Cerberus by Gene Wolfe. Um, treated one another as brothers and sisters. Worlds where there was no currency but honor, so that everyone worked in order that he might be entitled to associate himself with some man or woman who had saved the community. Worlds in which the long war between mankind and the beast was pursued no more. With these thoughts came a hundred or more new ones how justice might be meted out when all loved all, for example. Interesting echoes of Dan Simmons' Hyperion, by the way. Not yet written, but maybe Gene, you know, signed to the future. <laughs> um, how a beggar who retained nothing but his humanity might beg for honor, and the ways in which people who would kill no sentient animal might be shod and fed. And then, like the sister paragraph, now that old longing was rekindled again, and though it seemed to have grown more absurd still with the passage of the years, for surely the little apprentice I had been had more chance of flashing between the stars at last than the hunted outcast I had become, of course foreshadowing the fact that Severian is going to flash between the stars. It was immensely firmer and stronger because I had learned the, in the intervening time the folly of limiting desire to the possible. That's fucking magnificent. Like, if someone asks me to defend science fiction, I'm just going to quote him this passage, right? Like, he begins by, you know, swiping away pulp, you know, pulp science fiction and space opera and stuff like that, like the puerile imaginings of heroes and so on, and then defends speculative fiction, right? Which he was 
actively a part of when he was writing these books, like defending Slipstream and defending speculative fiction and stuff like that, because the, the folly of limiting desire to the possible. Very good. Very it's, good passage. It also touches on, so this is not a critique of this, but it touches on how um, in some people's minds, this is the book of of the four of them most filled with filler um and <laughs> it's the the sentiment of that i disagree with a lot like um i think if you really love literature um and i've read a lot of uh like 17th and 18th and 19th century stuff just because a uh, be luck in those books um you have these these lengthy scenes of of hiking and someone deep within their thought and it's fallen out of modern vogue like you'd be hard pressed to find something like this in a contemporary um especially sci-fi or fantasy which has seemed to regress prosaically quite a bit the notion of like that deep internalism and deep isolated thought doesn't really have a place in the very action-driven prose that we see in current stuff but um i can definitely understand the viewpoint of someone who's like the major parts are thrax and then the hut and then um uh satan mountain um (laughs) uh, and then it's like what's this and this part where he's walking goes on for a while it's like it's seriously like nearly a third of the book um but it's a part of that comes up where it's like it suddenly became like it's pretty obvious that he felt the need to make these books roughly equally sized um to make them sit on equal footing and so it just sort of Oh well, I need to fill space, so you get these brief little micro essays from from Wolf that uh, yeah, including the like you were saying the metafictive one where he just sort of ruminates on science fiction, yeah. and uh, I like to refer to this part uh, uh through the Nietzsche uh reference of like why I am so great, <laughs> yeah, for sure. This brief bit where Gene Wolf is like, and here's why I'm fucking awesome. Yeah, I own. <laughs> okay. If you're worried about the details, which we're going to, we're going to gloss up about a bunch of stuff later, which it just, just, you'll just be, you know, need to read them because they're just a cool, like, aesthetic moment. Oh, so yeah. don't worry. Okay. Severian reaches the hut. Um, there's a hut. In the hut, there's a family. The patriarch, the man of the family, is gone, probably dead. We find out that he is Beckon, um, as is the sister, the daughter of the family. Um, and who's left is, um, damn, what's her name? Casto, the mother, uh, an old man, nameless. You might think he's in Nere, but I don't think he's in Nere, although he fits the type. Um, and a kid, (laughs) and the kid is called Severian. Severian. And this is why I think the old man also isn't in Nere, so... There's a lot of like, he's literally called Severian, right? Like, it's the same name. Um, and when he says Severian, Severian, our Severian is like, oh, that's interesting. And she says, yeah, there's also Severa. And suddenly you understand that Severian is like Agilus, Agilus Agia, um, Severian Severa. And my theory is that this is a foil, and this is a red herring. Like, Gene is saying, I am literally calling this character Severian because he is not a version of Severian. I'm putting you off the chase by being coy. That's why the old man who we so want or think should be Father Inire is also not Father Inire. 
The point, though, is, is that this point you should ask yourself, wait, Wells Severa, right? If we know a Severian, and that's a couplet name, then where is the twin? Now, if you go online and you Google who is Severian's sister, you will find pages and pages <laughs> of theory and argument. This is perhaps the most contested question of the books and one on which Gene Wolfe said nothing before he died. Um, I used um, Robert Borsky's Solar Labyrinth, which is literally just a book with theories about the Book of the New Sun. It's a to... fucking great book, by the way. It's, <clears throat> it's also really excellent it's a great book. Uh, criticism. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's basically a collection of like articles and stuff that he sent online, like collected um, from the listserv and from other places, you know, other like scholarly publications on Book of the New Sun, which is a thing, by the way. Um, <laughs> and he has like a summary of all the candidates and his selection. So very shortly, right, we're just going to name the candidates and the main justifications for them being uh, Severa. And then we're going to say which one we think is Severa. And that's it. We're not going to do like, we could do like a whole episode just on this. So the first candidate and the weakest one is Merin, the apprentice of the Kumeyan. Um, and the justifications there is that Severian calls himself a witch several times. And we know that Merin was apprenticed in the Tower of the Witches. And we also know that the Tower of the Witches also adopts from uh, abandoned children like Severian was abandoned. And there's also a few, dif uh, few similarities in how they're described. But what's the main component missing? He doesn't have sex with her, right? Which is the marker of relationship to Severian. He's not even attracted to her. He doesn't describe her as beautiful. She has no, there's no gold mentioned. Remember how Agia and Agilus are covered with this like halo of light. So many of those key elements are missing. Then there is the prostitute that Severian sleeps with in the house Asia. Um, we don't know her name. He sleeps with her. He finds her attractive. And again, the house Asia um, you know, recruits from the lower parts of society. But afterwards, we learn, as we've already said on the cast, that all the prostitutes in the house Asia are clones, kaibits. Um, so that kind of like doesn't make sense um and they're all clones of like um hostages exultant hostages although the people who advocate for this version would say that severian is an exultant right yeah and we get a um, lot of evidence that he at least is descended from exultants exactly or is so, so christly that he's viewed as one yeah exactly so that's like a point in their favor and the last one hold on to your seat the last one is jolenta so when we're introduced to jolenta by the way, we didn't talk about it in the first book, like a lot of things, because there's so much fucking <laughs> in these books. Um, the waitress who serves him, Severian, Talus, and Baldanders in the inn is Jolenta, right? And before her transformation, which we, you know, came to to learn about in the second book, remember she augmented herself to be pretty and attractive and all that stuff. She's described much like Severian. Uh, she has the same color hair and the same type of body, and she's a waitress. Her, their father is a waiter, right, at the end of Lost Loves, Owen, 
and Severian has sex with her. Not only does he have sex with her, he rapes her. Um, which kind of seems to make sense with the whole like twin, you know, uh, power struggle, consuming, dominating, um, and so on. And also, we know that Jolenta is not her real name. Like it's explicitly said, it's not her real name. It's a stage name. So her name could be Severa. So I have a uh, a wild left field counter theory to all of this. Thankfully, it's it's short, and it's one in which. Uh, Eden and I have had many pitched battles <laughs> in private messages. <laughs> it's funny because it'll sound like I'm contradicting Eden almost entirely, but it lands at the same place. And so ultimately we're talking about two different ends. So I think very strongly that the Severian that he meets is quite literally Severian and that Severa is a real person and that the old man is uh, Father Anire because I think that this ties to... They discuss it. I, for, I forget whether it's the tail end of this book or if it's Ash in the fourth book, but time not just as a line that moves forward and back and not even necessarily just as a four, a corkscrew, but also as something that can move left or right and that we are encountering a parallel family unit to what we've seen. Now, ultimately, this lands at the same point. They're foils because that means that if, it, if it's a parallel Severian that shows up and then we get we get all everything that happens in a bit which we'll talk about it lands at the same point if he's just a foil of like this is what you could have um but i uh i'm i'm quick to as i mentioned in previous episodes if i see someone and i don't know who they are i'm already thinking they're severian if you tell me it's severian i'm like that's double severian that's just <laughs> that's so many severians um yeah. and this gets at the potential for so obviously the potential for a sister was left ambiguous because the fact that you can tie them to each of these figures means that there's fragments of them. Jolenta is the most obvious one. Jolenta seems textually to be the literal sister, but we have a lot of thematic sisters, such as we've talked about before, the witch's tower and the executioner's tower. Are they different towers or are they the same tower at different times? We have another alternative. If the witch's tower is all women and the executioner's tower is all men, are they the same tower sideways through time? So it's the same people, but this is the woman version where they're witches and this is the men version. So then you have these, and this gets at the, uh, the last little bit that we've talked about in private a bit is the, um, the hermaphroditism of, the Christos, the Christ spirit itself, that it is, it emerges in a human man, but it itself is bigger than gender as we know it. This is a, you see this a lot in mystic writing as well, that God may be referred to with certain pronouns, but God is beyond man and woman. And so you see that in the male and female edge of the blade. Um, you see that in Severian and Severa and Agulis and Agia of this twinning, but they are one thing. Um, so then thematically in a certain way, Severian is his own sister. And this is, uh, you also see this in Dune literally with, with the Kwisatz Haderach with the whole thing of Paul Atreides is that he is a man who can access both male power and female power. Um, but this is all thematic stuff. Textually, it's Jolenta. Like, yeah, I also also think it's Jolenta. Okay. (laughs) We spent way too long on this. Um, let's push forward. So well, that's because it banks. 
Yeah, no, it's slams. <laughs> I, I don't regret it. I'm just saying now we need to put the price side. So we need to talk to skip over Fetchin. Uh, Fetchin is the like famous painter guy. Um, he's mentioned again. Read uh, Robert Borsky's book or his specifically the essay on Fetchin. It's really really cool the way he pieces it together. Long story short, Fetchin was an Utalk, probably, uh, which is why he's so famous and people keep bringing him up. But let's gloss over that. Next big thing that happens is that Agia appears. Fucking Agia. Never let's go. <laughs> um, not a lot to say like on the discourse. Again, they fucking hate each other. They exchange words. They blame each other. The only interesting parts are where she talks about Hethel. And like at this point, we know that, right? Like you, the listener, already know that Hethel is in Nira. Um, but this is really the dialogue that fully confirms it, right? Like she says that he came to sell his clothes and they were the kind worn on the old ships that sailed beyond the world's rim long ago. Which we already know because Jonas recognizes him as a sailor. Um, and Severian says, I know, Jonas told me. And then she says, perhaps they were from the same ship, which is interesting. Or perhaps it, to- it was only that each would have known the other by some sign. Or that Hethor at least feared they would, right? Hethor would always like uh, evade Jonas. And would only appear sorry, <clears throat> himself <laughs> when Jonas was absent because he didn't want Jonas to recognize him. And then she says, his name isn't really Hethel, by the way. He says it's a, it's a much older one that hardly anyone has heard of now. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> like, we know it's not his um, real name. And then, well, Agia and Hethel go, go the monsters. We meet the Alzabo. Remember from the <laughs> cocktail that Severian concocts? We actually meet the guy, and he's like a fucked up raptor thing that uses the voice of his victims remember because he when the beast eats them it uh sucks up their personality and when you eat his brain its brain you gain their personality um there's nothing much to say about the scene except that it owns yeah like it rocks the fight is super cool it was also at this moment that i pieced together and we literally had talked about it and i just forgot i texted eden all excited i was like oh shit the alzabo is the uh the the eucharist and he's like bro we literally talked about that with each other and i was like i am the stupidest boy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you you imbibe it and you remember other people and it has superpowers this is i'm not going to go down the rabbit hole but then this prompts my brain going like so then why is it painted why is the vehicle of the eucharist a a weapon of demonic because obviously the the creatures of Hathor represent because yeah, if he's Satan these are these are demons that torment man. So the Eucharist is a demon and it can and it taunts you with the voices of what does that mean? And I'm like I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but this is where you can spin out on this book yeah. very easily. <laughs> so the scene is very cool. The fight is very cool. Severian um, defeats the Alzabo, and although we don't see him killing it, we don't see it come up again. You know, Hethor's uh, creations have this uncanny way to hunt Severian down, so the Alzabo is probably dead. Um, and Severian and Little Severian, that's his name from now on, um, and in the book as well, they escape. Right? Uh, the mother is killed, um, Severa is already dead, and so is Beckon, and Little Severian loses his family, <clears throat> kind of like Big Severian, but okay. Um, and they go on the road. Now, I want to touch on something. Um, 
that is quite problematic. Yep, I don't, I don't like this part. <laughs> yeah, is Severian a pedophile? Um, <clears throat> there are several descriptions of Little Severian that are weird and fucked up and hint that the relationship between Severian and Little Severian might have been one of um, pedophilia. There's another part in the book where, you know, I don't remember exactly who says it, but they say, we asked this guy if he was a pedophile, and he denied it. And because he denied it, we think he is one. Right? Because he denies it so vehemently. Thing is, Severian does that as well. Right? Like, he denies that there was anything between them. Um, but that denial, and then that sentence, plus some of the descriptions which describe Severian, little Severian, as pure and innocent and un uh, uh, unblemished and all sorts of uh, other creepy stuff like that, um, leads you to believe that perhaps that's what's going on. It's, of course, never explicitly said, but it would also fit in with the rest of the themes of the book. Right. It's also one of the things that sadly makes me think that he potentially is an alternate Severian, because that would unfortunately yeah. track. Um, yeah. Big frown. You can't see it. Big frown, though. <laughs> yeah, not not great. Uh, you can read Borsky about this. He has an exploration of this question, which I think is interesting. But either way, whatever the answer is, like I don't like the disambiguity on it, right? Or the ambiguity, sorry. Um, the ambiguity on it is uh, problematic. Anyway, during their travails, like, we can't solve that question, right? It's just bad. Just like the rape scene was bad. Um, this is bad as well. During their travels, you know, several things happen. Um, one of them is that they run into zoanthropes, which is another form of degenerate humans. These this, guys, like... This is also incredibly problematic. <laughs> yeah, super problematic. Um <laughs> They, these are guys who, like, couldn't handle living in modern society, so they had a lobotomy, um, like an elective lobotomy. And it, the reason it's problematic is the history of lobotomies is the history of, uh, you know, Reed Foucault, right? Like, the usage of medicine, quote-unquote, objective medicine, to go after um, homosexuals and leftists and um, other races, and it has, like, an inherent connection with eugenics which put together with the word degenerate which literally appears in the text um is not that great but i think at yeah. the end when we talk about the themes we'll talk about this theme in general because there is a bunch of eugenics in these books um not just in this scene like throughout the series which is bad i hope i don't have to say that, <laughs> that eugenics are bad um so severian and little severian once again, move through nature. Uh, Severian tells Little Severian this weird tale, um, the tale of fish and fog. And like we did with the retelling of Theseus, we'll kind of skim over this one. It's not as good as the one about Theseus. It's kind of like Cain and Abel and Romulus and Remus and Moses all kind of like mixed into one. And it also has a bunch of like anti-Native American shit. <laughs> <laughs> which is like really bad yeah uh, it, it, he he sort of he sort of shows his hands of like normally he's pretty good at um I, I was talking about this with my roommate who this is also his favorite book 
it's been nice sort of uh, refreshing notes with him that a lot of the thing that's beneficial about Gene Wolfe's uh, prose style in general is that he can sometimes put real earthy voices into people that you know he would think are idiot pieces of shit, but he does so so even-handedly within the text itself that you're like, okay, I can... Some people like us can engage with this because he's not uh, polemicizing in certain ways. Um, and then, but every now and again, the mask slips, and you're like, "Oh, oh, Gene, yeah. no, <laughs> no, Gene." <Yeah. laughs> okay, now we're we're getting to like a big part that we're just gonna gloss over, which is the encounter with like the anti New Sun cultists. Um, I literally forget this happens. Even like yeah. I finish the book and it's immediately out of my head. Yeah, it's not it's not really essential. Like it, it's it's good world building. Like these guys don't want the new sun to come. They've kind of like surrendered to darkness. So obviously it, they yeah. Go ahead. It it also check checks the box of the, of the Christ story. If you have certain um, it's also he's, he's Catholic, so there's certain like I'm not sure if he knew they were anti-Semitic, but these like anti-semitic thoughts that creep up of like the the jews that resist the messiah and so they seek to and yeah that and yeah it's he's checking a box here and it sucks a little bit but yeah um, the main the main point about this passage which is really good is his whole discussion about like fake magi and how they like control people and stuff with fakery whereas the new sun will be the real miracle and stuff like that which I think is really good. And and the action, like there's action there, which is really good. Like there's a fucking sorcerer fight, right? Um, which is really awesome. But that's it. Like they, they go there, they get captured, they escape. And then we get to the good stuff. Um, <laughs> this is the, the second real part of the book. <laughs> yeah. So um, they come upon... So they're walking towards this mountain that's built in this uh, form of a face, right? And Severian keeps saying it's an Utark's face or some sort of other ruler from beyond. And when they finally reach this mountain, they find it's basically a weather research station, right? We're up in the mountains now. These are the Andes, right? If you think about the geography of the book. Um, and there's a station here with cataphracts, right? Um, and these cataphracts are like these big figures. Some of them recall the Citadel and the towers of the Citadel specifically. Remember, those are spaceships. And some of them um, don't. So what's he, what he's actually describing here is big satellite dishes. Whereas the um, Atrium of Time, like small dishes, which he described as sundials, um, these like big weather and deep space dishes are there and they turn to face the sun is really cool because we know that what's happening is that they turn to face the sun you know out of a scientific technical reason right like they're tracking weather and the sun and all sorts of stuff but for severian um that kind of signifies again uh the new sun and um specifically these dishes are obviously tracking the dying of the new sun right like the climate change that's about to come and has been coming for thousands of years we actually and, get um, confirmation of this in the next yeah. book, but yeah. Uh, and also in this book, by the way, Typhon says, I just said Typhon, you don't know who that is, but um, Typhon oh, literally. He, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he says. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> I, I was told by the scientists of my time that climate change is coming, right? Um, so, well, I'll be. <laughs> yeah. And again, Severian says, um, perhaps it was merely the thin air, 
but I had a sudden vision of these metal men rising slowly, then ever more swiftly, lifting hands towards the sky as they dove into it as we used to dive down to the dark waters of the system by torchlight. Right? Spaceships. And again, just to reiterate, he's not an idiot. He knows these are spaceships. Right? Um, he, he knows what's, what's happening. It, it, it also acts as, as slight, um, slight foreshadowing of something that's going to happen literally in just a little bit where he finally witnesses the giant fucking men that uh, we were talking about in the last book. He, he spies them over the horizon and he sees them a little bit uh, here, but it's the, uh, the vision of like, oh my God, are those huge guys that the, uh, the Utark just has? Um, yeah. Which I, I like the dual usage there. Um, yeah, for sure. So the station is better preserved than all of the ruins we've seen so far. And that makes sense, right? It's remote. No one's coming to loot it, like in Saltus. It's up in the cold climate, so everything is more preserved. Um, and Severian finds some sort of, like, sick bay or control center or, like, navigational center with these crashes, with like, couches that, that people sit in. Um, these, like, you know, command, command chairs or whatever. Like, I'm thinking of the Star Trek captain's chair, Right. Um, with all these devices and on this um, one of these command centers or whatever there is a desiccated corpse okay no big deal right it's a corpse whatever but <laughs> um, it will come back to a haunt us before that uh, something needs to happen which is little Severian fucking dies <laughs> This shit is so fucking funny. Like, I, I don't think I'm supposed to find it funny, but I literally fucking hoot whenever I think about it or reread it. I mean, it just happens. It's so um, goofy. There's like, no build-up. There's no setup. Like, he literally... Oh, look, it's gold. It's like a golden ring. They're pointing um, at this, what they call a finger, but it's obviously like a giant energy cannon. And he's like, there's a big golden ring. And you're like, okay, I've seen... He references pulp part and then invokes pulp stuff because he at heart he does Gene Wolf does love sci-fi. So it's obviously like the energy ring of a big energy cannon or something. Yeah. And you're like, oh man, this isn't gonna end well. <laughs> he literally poofs like it's fucking Looney Tunes. <laughs> like yeah. it's the disguise is like there's a puff of smoke and then no boy. <laughs> yeah. So no, actually it's worse than that. He says, I found his like torched body and i didn't even bother to use the claw because he was so burnt that i couldn't resurrect him but inside this like perhaps goofy perhaps grim moment um so, uh gene wolf does two things one he gives us one of the best quotes of the entire fucking series um time itself is a thing so it seems to me that stands solidly like a fence of iron palings with its endless row of heels and we flow past like Gayol on our way to a sea from which we shall return only as rain. Come on. Come on, dude. You can't like, you can't fucking do that just after like you fried this guy. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then he also gives us one of the main points of evidence in the case of Jolenta as Severa, where he says, I knew then how Dorcas it felt when Jolenta died. When I read this, I was like, wait, What? What, what are you talking about? And it says, there had been no sexual play between the boy and me. Hmm. Why would you say that then, man? Why would hmm. you say that? I didn't think that until you said it. As I believe there had at some time between Dorcas and Jolenta. 
And, Excuse me? Yep. Uh, and then there's the whole guys on Reddit like, Severian doesn't lie. Yeah, he does. He never told us about any of this shit. Um, but then it had never been the fleshly love that had aroused my jealousy. The depth of my feeling for the boy had been as great as Dorcas's for Jolenta, surely. Hmm. Yeah. So, Dorcas also sleeps with Jolenta, who is her grandmother, probably. Okay. So, if, if that wasn't fucked up enough, um, Severian walks into this structure. And, by the way, this episode is going to be fucking long. <laughs> Like we're 20 minutes before the two hour mark, I think, and there's a whole lot more to talk about. Buckle so, in. <laughs> Typhon. Remember that desiccated corpse? Well, you know what happens to desiccated things? Think like uh, tardigrades, right? Uh, you give them water and they resuscitate. And that's what happens with Typhon. So, Typhon is a fucked up guy with two heads. He Actually, is part yeah. Korean, part. Swedish. This is where we get the literalized form of what we were talking about before, where he talks about he has one head has black straight hair and one has like pale, uh, like pale hair, like straw. And you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then you enter you intersperse the fact that he was in the Korean War. Now he probably feels about Korean people. And the the characterization of Typhon's going to make a lot more sense in a really awful way with, with that lens. <laughs> yeah. And also remember that we talked about like how the, the Swedish Empire and the Korean Empire were like the first spacefaring civilizations. We talked about that when we spoke about Vodalus and Jonas. Um, so Typhon is the last monarch before the Utarchs, right? He is the last guy before the first Utarch is instated. The first Utarch is conciliator right remember from the story of syriaca there was a man possessed of the knowledge of the ancients who instated the utarchy right so that they would preserve the knowledge um, of the past and also try out for the new sun but we'll get to that in the fourth book um he's the guy before those and he was like the king of the last galactic empire of man he says as much in the book like i ruled multiple planets and Everybody would kneel to me, um, and I was all-powerful. And he literally says, I have told you that I was Utark on many worlds. Of course, Typhon wants to come back, and now that he's resurrected by Severian, and here I don't think it's like explicitly like a miracle, but Severian kind of triggers the base, which resuscitates um, Typhon, which makes sense. Like the most powerful man, you're about to die. You will find some sort of trick, right? Some sort of way to bypass death via desiccation for example um shadows of uh the three body problem right desiccation uh, plays a big part there as well anyway those books gonna... are crazy we should definitely cover those at some point i actually didn't like the first one i mean i like the world building but i didn't like the writing um, i felt the same they get fucking bananas by the end the bomb yeah. that blows up dimensions yeah making not... a computer out of an army let's not yeah the computer of the army is like the, the best fucking part of that. Fucking book. crazy. Anyway, <laughs> like he does logic gates with actual people. Anyway, um, <laughs> so Typhon wants all these things and he's offering Severian, you know, like you'll be the Utark of Earth while I'll be the pan-galactic, whatever, skeletal ruler of everything. Um, but the we most... Get, 
co- yeah. we get little bits of Nebuchadnezzar here with um yeah yeah for sure. But I think also like Typhon is a giant, and oh, yeah. we've already met a giant. He's called Baldandles. I think Typhon and Baldandles represent um, two different parts of Severian. Right, two different mirror images distorted of Severian. We'll get to Baldandles at the end of the book because we're going to meet him again. The Typhon is Severian's will to power unchained, right? He's raw domination. So we've met this kind of domination inside of Severian before, right? In the rape of Jolenta, in his pleasure in his um, executions, in his forcing of certain paths or decisions on Dorcas and on others. He's a very dominating person, but as part of his journey towards Christhood or conciliatorhood or new sonhood, he mets that part of him with morality and empathy. Typhon is that part of him unleashed, right? Um, tellingly, uh, Gene Wolfe describes his penis um, like as very prominent, um, which again, you know, works into these ideas of masculinity um, and this uh, swagger, right? And this uh, self-security. He's naked. He's displaying himself. He feels no uh, concern from anyone else. Um, but he has a weak, po- a weak spot, right? Uh, Typhon actually is grafted onto the body of a different person to survive, right? To, again, cheat death, um, which is another mirror image, right? Severian resurrects and with the power of God, of the create of the pan-creator, whereas Typhon twists it with science and bodily manipulations, like bald handles, right? We even um, have uh, little touches of, so Typhon, the, the myth figure, was yeah. the first child of, of Kronos, who attempted to overthrow Zeus. Like, the war between the yeah. gods and the titans was was spearheaded by Typhon. And then Piaton, the the head that is sewn on to him, is the name of a headless saint, a saint who had the top of his head cut off. And so you're like, okay, Gene. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's this Piaton who tells um Severian how to defeat Typhon, which is of course to kill Piaton, right? Um to decapitate him in an act of martyrdom. Right? Um, which then you know destroys the body that Typhon is um, tied to, and Typhon is defeated. He does his classic, no, my big glowing red weak point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a bloodborne boss. Um, so he also goes up an elevator at one point in this and doesn't straight up does not know what elevators are, which is really funny to me. Yeah, like we went down in a boat, but then we went up. What the fuck? You're like, bro, come on. You're in an elevator, yeah. Also, he sees um, a TV in there, like a television screen in the eye, and he's like, "I am tripping out right now." What the fuck? Yeah, there's this whole passage where he sees like the world opening up um, under him, and Typhon is defeated. Of course, it symbolizes the defeat of Severian's will to power mm-hmm. um, and overcoming. Well, as a Christian, you know, overcoming this idea of the Nietzschean Ubermensch and that we don't need God, we only need ourselves and we only need our will writ large on, on the world. Um, all that stuff is done away with. And then guess what happens? Severian goes into nature again. Um, and there's a bunch more, like, really good internal monologue, but that we're going to skip over almost completely. 
Um, just to taste, just so you know what happens in this part, for example, the sun spread a path of red gold across the lake, a path that appeared to extend the village street to the margin of the world, so that a man might have walked down it and out into the larger universe. And a lot, all sorts of these ruminations on settlements that he encounters and his loneliness and nature and all that stuff, you know, he's slowly digesting what's happening, right? Slowly coming to terms with who he is, what it means to be the new son. You know, he only writes down like 10% of what he thought, right? A lot of it is trying to understand um, what, what is this world and what is his role in it. Now we get to the bomb book. Because during this period of travel, he reads in the brown book to pass the time. And this is what he says. And again, it's, it's a long passage, um, but it's great. Um, and let me, let me read you the whole thing. I took out the brown book and would have read from it if I could. But though my fever seemed to have left me, I was still very fatigued. And the flickering firelight made the cramped old-fashioned letters dance on the page and soon defeated my eyes so that the story I was reading appeared at some times to be no more than nonsense, and at others to deal with my own concerns. Endless journeyings, the cruelty of crowds, streams running with blood. Once I thought I saw Agia's name, but when I looked a second time, it had become the word again. Agia, that is again, she leaped, and twisting round the columns of the carpus. The page seemed luminous, yet indecipherable like the reflection of a looking-glass scene in a quiet pool. I, look, I closed the book and put it in my sabotage, not certain I had in fact seen any of the words I had thought an instant ago I had read. Agia must indeed have leaped from the thatched roof of Castor's house. Certainly she twisted, for she had twisted the execution of Agilus into murder. And then he goes on this tangent. The great tortoise that in myth is said to support the world and is thus an embodiment of the galaxy without whose swirling order we would be a lonely wanderer in space, is supposed to have revealed in ancient time the universal rule, since lost, by which one might always be sure of acting rightly. Its carpus, which is the tangent here, right, represented the bowl of heaven, its plaster on the plains of all the worlds. The columns of the carpus would then be the armies of the Theologemnon, terrible and gleaming. Yet I was not sure I had read any of this, and when I took out the book again and tried to find the page, I could not. So, <laughs> the brown book is a Kindle. Okay? It's not an actual book. It's a technological device that contains within it the entirety of Ulton's library. Okay? Um, when I first started reading the books, I was like, I thought about this, and I was like, no way, that, that's too, it's too crazy. But then there's the passage where, oh, sorry, and what really like refuted me was that he describes the pages like physical pages, right? Like he's not swiping on it. It's actual pages that he turns. But then we, in the second book, when we meet the Utark, there's another book like that with pages that he turns, and he sees a fucking like cosmic monster inside of them. And I was like, wait, so it is possible that something both has pages and is technological. That's where all this fucking knowledge is coming from. Like, how does he know the story about this tortoise? How does he know the story about fish and frog and the story about um, Theseus? Right? Like, where, how does he know about Theseus? 
so you could say that you know it you know went down the generation stuff like that but he like actually retells it like perfectly word for word yeah he has perfect recall and all that shit i know but not really like he forgets a lot of stuff it's because it's in this book which is a kindle we now we even we even have these beautiful touches so this is this is how the book is able to be at once clearly the bible and then in another moment clearly yeah. like Wolfinch's mythology and this is this is the fucked up part so he talks about textually how he is writing his chronicle down and book of the new sun is him after the events of book of the new sun writing it down pinch from lord of the rings but you know why not steal from the greats that's it's a great fucking yeah. frame narrative yeah he it's hit the book of the new sun is in the brown book yeah so the book of the new sun because is in the brown book wait wait hold on for... hold on it's <laughs> in it's in the bound book twice because one time when you finish when you get to the fourth book severin is writing the story inside the brown book and again this is like a very long story so the book needs to have infinite pages which it does and secondly because it's not actually writing down like it's like recording it digitally yeah. or whatever and secondly when severian finishes the book of the new sun he sends it to ulton's library where it is cataloged and put into the brown book okay <laughs> so it's in there twice and there's gene gene wolf's copy right that he got from the future and that can explain like all these echoes of severian's story and all these different ways uh the brown book itself is also from the future is is yeah. my pet my pet theory that it's one of the hero duels oh yeah, yeah. i mean um, ultan's library like literally is to if you remember the first book like it spans across space and time yeah and we, we we this is one of those things where um earth of the new sun the book isn't strictly necessary but if you're ever wondering you read it and it's more or less wolf spreads the curtain and goes all right here's here's how everything connects and you're like oh yeah all right yeah but it's yeah it's here here is the moment where he he tells you if you know how to read between the lines or yeah. barely because he talks about the pages gleaming like they're yeah. glowing um also and i'm gonna you know that meme the chad meme will shows up says something doesn't explain leaves mm -hmm. so i'm gonna do that ultan is severian yep Okay, so uh, we're, we're again in nature. Severin at this point is like uh, feverish. He's super like thirsty and hungry and all that stuff. Um, in fact, that's the way that Typhon like gets is um, like one ups him by promising him food and drink and he is unable to resist. Um, and at the end of all of this, he again gets duped by food and drink. He finds a village. Um, they poison him. I'm I'm really glossing this over. There's really cool stuff in there about like um, m moving islands, like people who live on islands as boats and stuff like that. But it, it's, essentially, it's, uh, he meets Mayans because yeah. Tenochtitlan was famously a floating city that is yeah. works the same way they talked about. Yeah, exactly. So these are like descendants of other civilizations. There's two things to remember here um, in this passage that are important. One, there's another foil. Um, he sleeps with Paya, which is a, a, like a girl from the village. That's all she is. She never comes up again. And she has no importance. And it's just a foil for you to go like, oh, wait, he sleeps with her. That means that she's related to him. But how does that work? Oh, it doesn't because it's just a woman. And the second thing is 
Remember how there were guys living beside the lake which burnt down Bald Andal's castle? It's these guys. Right? Um, the lake people are the guys who rose up against Bald Andal's. Um, and they'll, they keep talking about this master who is, um, you know, ruling over them. It's very obvious that this is Bald Andal's. And again, Severian plays fucking coy. Oh, who could this person be? A giant in a castle by a lake? Hmm. Who could it be? And he's like surprised when he meets him. It's really annoying. Um, <laughs> he leads this rebellion, which fizzes out, doesn't really do anything. He goes into the castle without them. And he meets Baldanders and Talus. And here is where we get confirmation on a bunch of stuff that we already talked about in the second book that Baldanders created Talus, that Talus is a robot. That the role that Talus plays for Baldanders is he's his doctor basically. Like he wakes him up, he keeps his limbs moving because Baldanders is doing like all this um, experimentation on himself. And then we get to the important scene. Everything we just talked about is not important, right? <laughs> Except for Thrax, maybe. The the point of Sword of the Lictor, and in this sense, Sword of the Lictor is the key that turns the entire series, like opens the door, is meeting the Hyrodules. So Baldandos and Talus have been in communication with the Hyrodules. And we find out why. Remember that uh, Syriaca's history, future prophecy? Right? Their, their, their thing is, you know, preserving knowledge. All they want is for knowledge to be disseminated. A bald Anders, um is a scientist rediscovering a lot of lost technology. His castle is described as, you know, it has almost as many instruments as the citadel of the torturers, as the tower of the torturers, sorry. Um, and bald Anders thus expects them to help him against the villagers, right, who are going to rise up against our master. And they say, nah, we don't care. Because if you die and they ransack your castle your knowledge will be disseminated, right? So it's not about Paul Dandels himself. It's just about his role as a vessel of knowledge. And that's why, you know, he's of the Undines, but he's not really the Hyrodule's enemy because nothing that really happens is against their plan, right? As long as it furthers humanity's knowledge. So all that put out of the way, let's talk about the Hyrodules. So there are... Um, Three Hyrodules, Osipago, Barbatus, and Famulimus. If those names strike you as interesting, you should Google them, <laughs> because they are. Let's talk about Barbatus first, because he's kind of irrelevant um, to the scene. He stays in the back. Um, he doesn't really say anything. He only says that, you know, Baldanders and Severian have to act of their own free will, like the Hyrodules can't force them to do anything. He kind of stays in the background. Let's talk about Osipago then. Osipago is fucking weird. And Borski has a really good article about him. Like, they're all wearing masks. Okay? And we all we know that they're wearing masks, right? Uh, because we know from the play. Remember when Baldanders freaked out, they all took off their masks and they were like these Cthulhu-esque uh, Cthonic entities. But they explicitly say, Famulimus says at the last scene, that they actually wear two masks. So there's the one mask they put on which is what people are used to seeing. Then there's the monsters underneath, the cacogens, right? Which they use to like, you know, 
instill fear in the population and rule it. And then there's, there's, there's the actual face. Except for Osipalo, who has like glowing eyes which are not eyes. That's how it's described, right? And he's organic and artificial at the same time. Who the fuck knows? He could be a robot, right? Like a servant to the other Hyrodules. He could be a Hyrodule pretending to be a robot, right? Because there's double masks, remember, right? And he never reveals his true form. He only reveals the second mask, which is kind of robotic. There's all sorts of stuff with this guy, and it's not really explained, unless you read the Oath of the New Sun. Um, well, it's kind they, of they, they, they quite literally tell you a, a lot of this in that one. Yeah. The, uh, the dual mask thing is our first real strong hint of these being angels. Um, obviously, we've gotten like thematic hints before, but this is them pretty literally saying the, the classic thing from Christian uh, Christian myth of like the first face of the angel is something that looks like people so that it can walk among you. The second face is this fucking weird eldritch thing. And then the third thing is this deeper theological image yeah. that has no real clear image to the eye it's an image to the spirit so uh, uh two other things okay so we talked about robetes and Osipago, but the actual interesting figure is famulimus right um she is going to reveal her true form to severian and also um tells him a bunch of stuff first of all when they meet famulimus says the following Welcome. There is no greater joy for us than greeting you, Severian. You bow to us in courtesy, but we to you will bend our knees. And he did, because he doesn't know it's a woman yet, and he did briefly kneel, as did both the others. So they know he's the new son. And we'll get to how they know in a second. The first hint is when Osipago and Barbetus are starting to reveal the true nature of the world. And this is what they say. Um... I'm sorry, there is a mark they use upon some world where sometimes our worn ship finds rest at last. It is a snake with heads at either end. Obviously, a robot, right? One head is dead, the other gnaws at it. Without turning from the window, Osipago said, That is this world, I think, <laughs> right? They've lost track, <laughs> right? This is where the robot image comes from. And then Barbatos says, No doubt. Camoinia could reveal its home. This is the Cumane, by the way, but we'll get to that maybe in the fourth book. But then it doesn't matter if you know it. You will understand me the more clearly. The living head stands for destruction. The head that does not live for building. The former feeds upon the latter, and feeding nourishes its food. A boy might think that if the first should die... The dead, constructive thing would triumph, making his twin now like himself. The truth is, both would soon decay. So, like Gene just spelled out for you the entire metaphysics of the setting, right? Um, and of his books and how he sees the world. Destruction is the living force. It's dynamics, right? Fire. Right, fire is not dead. Fire is destruction, but it's alive. It burns. It consumes. Building, which is materialism, right? the actual matter, is dead. But from that matter, you build things like roads and buildings and weapons and cars and whatnot. And they both need each other. Now, someone stupid 
a boy, right, thinks that if um, spirit would die, then the world would become just materialist, right? It would just become um, a very simple and straightforward and dead reality. Whereas the reality is that without destruction, that is spirit, progress, internal work, shadow work, even if you want to be Jungian about it, then the dead would die, right? The material side of things would disappear and wither away, which is a really beautiful and really interesting way um, to put it. The uh, the shortest way to make, um, to, to tie it directly is that a a corpse like literally the corpse of say someone that you love like like a mother or grandmother no longer is a corpse when there is no one to perceive it as a corpse uh, the minute that it cannot be perceived as a living person that's passed it's the same as like a rock um and i don't know it's really moving i'm like oh that's touching yeah i think it's a it's a really good part so then they move through a bunch of other stuff there's a bunch of stuff it, about it yeah, is pretty tight when the angels straight. So obviously, they're angels. They straight up turn and they're like, "Oh, Severian, you're our boss." And it's like, yeah. "What?" And Baldanders is fucking pissed. He's like, "What? Yeah. No, I'm no. You're here for me." They're like, "No, no. We were hanging out because we knew Severian would come here because Severian told us he would come here, and he did. And now we're gonna tell him what he needs to know." And Severian, uh, because it's future Severian, obviously that sends them. He's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And then yeah. they tell him. The beautiful dramatic irony, it's not cryptic to us, but Severian in the moment is like, what the fuck did they say? And Baldanders is like, what did they tell you? And he's like, I don't know. It's yeah. just, it's it's great. I the the Deus Ex Machina of this of literally like the angels breaking the fourth wall to monologue literally the story at you happens again literally explicitly in the fourth book. But this is a beautiful um he can get away with it because he establishes in moments like this that that's part of his mode. Yeah. Okay. So then they talk a, a bit more about Baldanders and everything that I said about him dying so that knowledge will be seeded by his death amongst the population, all that stuff. There's also some weird shit about their age and how they perceive time. They say ages are eons to us, but then Baldanders said these things live only a score of years like dogs. It could be Baldanders just being a dick, but I think it also speaks to like how these creatures live, which we'll get to now. Because the real show is when Severian talks to Famulemus. Um, and Famulemus says a bunch of really interesting um, thing, things. Sorry. So the first one is, though you did not now pass our test, I meant no less than what I said to you, that he's their leech. How often we have taken counsel, liege. How often we have done each other's will. So, here's the thing. The Hyrodules live backwards in time. Right? They start from the future, kind of like Merlin in The Ones in the Future King. They start from the future, and they move backwards. So this first meeting between them and Severian is actually their last. And this is what Famulimus means by how many times we have taken counsel, because for them, they have. Now, you did not now pass our test. The test is, are you the new son yet? Right? Are you ready for the new son? The answer right now is no. But of course, um, it will be yes. And then Formulimus removes um, 
her disguise and this is how her face is described then the hand moved again as before and that too fell away the second mask beneath it was the strange calm beauty i had seen carved in the faces of the moving statues in the gardens of the house absolute but differing from that as the face of a living woman differs from our own life mask so they're the true article right um, being worshipped basically by the statues in the House Absolute, which will make sense in the fourth book. Basically, the Utarchs are being guided by the Hyrodules um, as well. Um, so she removes the mask. Uh, There's the whole thing with the cold and the hot. I don't think we want to get into that. It's very <laughs> weird. Like The Hyrodules are cold, um, and Baldandos' castle is cold as well. There's like a bunch of theories on because the Hyrodules come from the future and they travel back in time, they're like entropic beings. Like they feed off of coldness because they come from the end of the universe where everything is, you know, like um, entropic and cold and, you know, the heat death, right? Um, so they need things to be cold in order to function. We can spend like hours just on that. Um, but what's... The main... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the main meaty thing for this. So they t they lay out a lot here, both in terms of um, theology and plotting. Thankfully, it's stuff a lot of which we've already talked about, because if you if you keep your head up through the books and hopefully our stuff has has hinted at little bits of this, none of this is necessarily new information. This yeah. is confirmation. This is them saying it out loud in case. Uh, and this is where I think a lot of people who are reading Book of the New Sun tend to have trouble, or for the first time, tend to have trouble. Because if you've read it before, you read through books one and two, and even the first bit of book three, and you're like, oh, here's where he seeded literally all of that. Okay, that makes sense. Meanwhile, the first time you're reading it, it may not, it can feel meandering and almost plotless. Um, this is sort of the big reveal for someone who's never read before. One interesting point from this whole con, uh, whole bit with the Hyroduels that uh causes um again one of those moments where it sounds like Eden and I are in conflict but aren't really is the nature of the claw because yeah. it, it's a quick aside they just they're like oh Baldanders is like I want to look at the claw and the Hyroduels are like yeah well, let's see the claw and he pulls it out and they look at it and they're like that can't do miracles bro and he's like but but it did <laughs> yeah. and they're like yeah whatever um and this this touch obviously there is on one end like of course it can't do miracles because the new sun does miracles but then you get how do you know that someone is the new sun because we never see agia give him the gem so it's almost as though the gem sort of finds him and it's yeah you get the through buddhism you get the same thing of like the bell doesn't let you do buddha stuff but you wouldn't pick up the bell if you weren't the buddha so i don't know i'm just i i find that neat also that they bury uh just as an aside in the middle of this like oh yeah no that doesn't do anything bro it's neat though it's neat we like it yeah um <laughs> yeah. looks cool so <laughs> here here as well is confirmed that the high road was like interfering in history um like at some point severian says it is true then like you you guide us over the centuries and raised us from savagery and also um uh, famulimus says how long, Severian, if we did not, that is, hide our true nature, would common men abide the reign, not ours? We would not rob your race of your own rule. By sheltering your kind from us, does not your Utark keep the phoenix throne? 
this whole idea of the Utark as the person who treats with the Hyrodules, that's fake. Like the Hyrodules run the Utarchy, they run all of this, they run Earth, all just because, just like in Syriaca's history prophecy, and again, now you understand why it's a prophecy, right? Because if the Hyrodules are the AIs seeding humanity with knowledge and they come from the future, then Syriaca's story is yet to take place and has also already taken place. Um, they run the entire show. And then there's the last part, which is really beautiful. And she answered, though you see us, we will not see you more. Our friendship here begins and ends, I fear. Call it a gift of welcome from departing friends. Just really beautiful. I love and that again, backwards time sci-fi shit. Reminds me of uh, the yeah. How to Lose a Time War, which plays this similar yeah. stuff. Fucking beautiful. But also Merlin from The Once and Future King, right? Where oh, yeah. he remembers time backwards. So the first time he meets Arthur, he's really sad because for him, it's the last time that he's going to meet him. Um, which is a really cool concept. Okay, and then Severian fights the other giant, right? He fights Bald Anders. And Bald Anders, like we said about Typhon, he is not um, will without restraint, restraint, he's intellect without restraint, right? His idea is not to subjugate others. He doesn't really care about the villagers and whether they follow him or not. They're just devices towards, you know, all of the experimentations that he does on himself. So it's intellect trying to subjugate you know, himself and his humanity. Whereas Severian's um, learnings or teachings, depending on how you want to see it, is about, you know, the Christian surrender, right? Like intellect surrendering and working with, which is also kind of platonic, right? And working with um, truth and beauty and justice and all that stuff, right? Instead of intellect, you know, holding the reins. Um, so there's this big fight. It's super cool. Nothing much to say about it. There's all yeah. sorts of like sci-fi shit. It's very sword and sorcery, Right. Like it's um, uh, Gene Wolfe at his most, Michael Moorcock, right? Um, magic maces and the magic anti-grav belts and all sorts of like weird machines. It's really cool. It's like very Flash Gordon. Um, does not. I, I keep to say. feeling like the mace has to symbolize something, but I know it doesn't. <laughs> I know. I'm just like if he spends so much time talking about this glowing mace. It's got to be. It's got to be tricking yeah. me. Like it's a gun and no. It's just it awesome. rules. Yeah, this is this is also his payoff. It's like, hey, thanks for coming with me on this meandering kind of like yeah. two and now three books. Lots of theology, lots of especially in this book, nature stuff and ruminative stuff. Why? Do, and now I've revealed it with the angels. I've shown you the mechanism of the plot. And you're going to be ready for this big. Um, it's the fourth book isn't climactic in the it's climactic in the way that religious it's stories. The, it's are the moment, right? It's the yeah, nomen. exactly it's the reveal. But he's like, hey. Cool sword fight. There you go. You made it. Here you go. Yeah. It's sort so, of like the big robot fight in the third Matrix movie where it's like uh, people who are dumb complain about it, but people who are elite <laughs> are like, hey, you made it through all three of these movies. Let's shoot some robots. And you're like, yo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So two things happen that are important in this fight. In the beginning of the fight, Baldandos throws the claw um, over the wall and into the sea in kind of like a fuck you Severian moment. And then in order to defeat uh, Baldandos, in fact, Severian says, this was the entire reason that I was given Terminus Est because it's so big and he needs to use it to defeat someone like Baldandos, the sword breaks. Uh, like Severian uses it to break this fear effect that the mace has and the sword shatters when he blocks the mace. 
Of course, we've talked a lot about the sword as, you know, another sort of Christian symbol of the cross, and there's a lot of, again, androgynous stuff, and terminicist, right? This is the dividing line. Um, the fact that it breaks is, of course, tied into the fact that the claw also breaks. The gem around the claw um, breaks, and Severian finds this, the claw within the claw, right? Like the, the center that he could glimpse beyond the gem, which is the claw itself. And he sits there on the beach with the broken claw. He buries or sends away the broken terminus, which symbolizes he doesn't need the, the, the physical cross anymore, right? By defeating Baldanders, by meeting the Hyroduels, by defeating Typhon, by betraying the Torturer's Guild, so on, he has become the conciliator, right? He doesn't need the claw. He doesn't need the sword. He doesn't need... So here's a stupid uh, comparison. Remember the Merlin Hallmark show? That show rocked. It really fucking sucked. That's true. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just a big Merlin guy. <laughs> no, no, it also rocked in a trashy sort of way. But there was this <laughs> one really cool thing about it, if you remember, the levels of power of a magician dictate how much fluff he needs to cast spells. Mm-hmm. So like when you're beginning, you need wands and potions and you need to shout and stuff like that. And then the ascended wizard Merlin come again only needs to say one word. Exactly the same thing here. When he's nascent, when he's not in touch with himself, he needs Terminus assessed. He needs the claw to magnify his mission and his powers. Now that he has walked through the crucible of nature, of fever, of hunger, of Baldanders and Typhon and little Severian dying and all that stuff, he no longer needs those symbols. Now, let me clue you in on something. The series could have ended here. Like, we have everything. Yeah. <laughs> all, the, all the loose ends are tied. Thematically, it's, it's done. Yeah. Yeah, like, we understand the metaphysics. We, under, we get confirmation about the Hyroduels. We understand what's happening, why Severin is being guided, where he is right now. The claw is either a focus or fake entirely. The sword is gone. Baldanders is defeated. It could have ended here. He quite literally becomes the new son here. Yeah. He hasn't done the thing yet, but this is he's 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 ready. He's ascended at this moment. Exactly. And then the fourth and book. The higher is even telling like it's faded that you win. Yeah. From this point on, like <laughs> once they meet him, it's on the track where he becomes the new son, right? The other Severians that fail, we'll talk about them in the next book, they don't meet the higher duels. So once he's met the Hyroduels, who again, remember, move from the future, so they know what the future for this Severian will be. Once they meet and link and co- hold hands, like they literally hold hands, um, the fate is sealed. And this Severian is proven to be the Severian, um, the new son. Next time, <laughs> war. War and the rumors of war. Um, we'll talk about Citadel of the Utark, my least favorite book um, of the four, but still very good. All the reveals, <laughs> everything will be revealed. Uh, Father Inira shows up a few times, of course, in disguise. We meet the Utark again, lots of weapons, uh, lots of weird shit. We find out what Destrials are. Um, no, hint, they're not horses. Um, and a bunch of other crazy shit happens. Uh, including Gene Wolf literally saying the words Deus Ex Machina, uh, which Beautiful. is... Beautiful. It rocks. 
awesome. Anyone else doing it, it would be corny and hackish. But no, he's he does it. And you're like, fuck you, man. You're one of the best writers who's ever lived. I hate you so much. <laughs> yeah. So um, music. Uh, this week, I came upon this band called Still. And these guys, beyond um, making caustic, kind of lo-fi, but not as you think it, um, black metal, with lots of like heavy metal shit um, in the, and lots of really weird influences. They're also explicitly anti-imperialist, indigenous, and anti-capitalist, like no. unapologetically so. It owns. And the album is really good. Um, What's the name of the record? I haven't heard of this. So it's like 2. I.I. Like Roman 2 by the band called Stell. It's kind of hard to even search for it. I'm right now like scrolling through my feed (laughs) where I shared it just so I can find the link to put on here. I'm like, Um, man, I can't find this shit at all. This is gonna... Yeah, yeah, you can't find it. I I came across it, by the way, guys. Um... Crawling through the tags on Bandcamp is a really good way to find new music. Yeah. I really um, wish they had a chronological sort, though. That's, that's my big... Yeah. Um, but, there's like, yeah. Uh, there's like Evil. a bunch of features missing in Bandcamp, and yeah. chronological sorting is definitely one of them. Like, but I don't release day found... sorting. I love that. But... Yeah, so go to unholyrub.bandcamp.com. That's like the Unhol- label that released this. And Holy I just what? want to read to you, Unholy Rub, R-U-B. Oh. One word, yeah. So I just want to read to you the text that comes with this, and then the poem at the beginning of Sword of the Lictor, and then the track itself. So, two songs that speak to the ghosts of indigenous past, of those women, men, and children who have lost their lives to colonizing hands of religious perverts and political supremacy, whose intentions are to try to destroy Mother Earth and silence the voices of those who truly care for her. You are never forgotten. Your ways will not die. The imperial life will hang. Fucking awesome. And the music is like super intense. If you like stuff like Book of Sand and bands of that sort, then you'll love this. (laughs) So uh, the the poem at the end of uh, Solo Delictor. Into the distance disappear the mounds of human heads. I dwindle. Go unnoticed now. But in affectionate books, in children, in children's games, I will rise from the dead to say, the sun. I, I don't think I need to explain like the meaning of this together with what we said about the writer when we started this, um, this episode. So to sum this all up and get you hyped for the fourth episode and the fourth book in which we will finally finish the book of the new sun. Unless we end up doing Earth, we haven't decided yet. <laughs> this is still with our ways will not die to god, to god i hope you don't, don't mind, mind but i would like to talk we would to like you. to talk to you there are some things there we, need, things to we need to straighten out it's about, it's these, about christians. these christians they claim they to be from your nation, your nation. but man but you man should see the things they do, they do all the time blaming it on you, you. raping lying, the earth taking lying taking more than they need in all the forms and degrees they say it's god's will 
I don't mean to be disrespectful. We do not mean to be disrespectful. But you know how it is. But you know how it My is. people have their own Our ways. people have their own ways. We never even heard of you until not long ago. Your representative spoke magnificent things of you, which we were willing to believe. But from the way they acted, we know you and we were being deceived. It is time for you to decide what life is worth. We already remember.